This episode of Intergenerational Politics was recorded before it was revealed that Russia had tried to meddle in the 2020 elections to help Donald Trump, which makes our conversation today with our special guest all the more important. So we hope you enjoy this episode starting now. You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, uh, the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you'll all enjoy, and also an MSNBC legal analyst and former general counsel of the Army. And possibly relevant to today, I was in international business development for Motorola and spent a significant amount of time in Russia. So as we proceed, I'll talk a little bit more about that experience as well. On this podcast, we usually focus on domestic politics, but today we are following up on our recent conversation about fascism and the risk it presents in America, specifically in Russia, with our very special guest, Fiona Hill. We'll be discussing Russia, Vladimir Putin, the recent demonstrations in support of Putin's chief opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, U.S.-Russia relations since 2016, and the road ahead for the Biden administration. Now, very few people understand Putin, Russia, U.S.-Russia relations better than our guest today, Fiona Hill, who became a national figure when she testified during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. She is now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and is hard at work on a new book due out in September called There is Nothing for You Here, Opportunity in an Age of Decline, which is a book I am very much looking forward to reading and a book I hope all generations will look forward to reading once it's out in September. She served as deputy assistant to President Trump and senior director for European and Russia Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. Earlier in her career, from 2006 to 2009, under Presidents Bush and Obama, she was an intelligence analyst for the National Intelligence Council. Uh, Fiona currently is the co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, which captures uh, her experience she possesses for talking to us today. Uh, Fiona, I Look forward to our conversations on all things Russia, particularly Putin, Navalny, and U.S.-Russia relations going forward, as well as your experience testifying during former President Trump's first impeachment, uh, as well as your upcoming book. So thank you so much for being here, Fiona. Uh, we are really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you so much, Jill. And thank you, Victor, as well. This is great to be here today. Thanks. And before Victor starts with our first questions, I just want to uh, expand a little bit about my work in Russia for Motorola. It was in the 90s, and I was um, creating and then chairing St. Petersburg Telecom, and the deputy mayor, uh, Michael, I called him Michael, Mikhail uh, Minevich, um, was on our board and was assassinated. Uh, His wife was injured in the assassination, but she survived. Uh, American businesses were threatened, and Putin, who had recently retired from the KGB, was a rising star uh, under St. Petersburg's mayor, uh, Subchuk, where he helped St. Petersburg Telecom uh, during our startup period. So I just wanted to have that on the record <laughs> before we, you know, go further. But Victor, why don't you start the questions? Just for our audience, just to start with maybe the broader context of the situation in Russia, um, you know, I'd like to kind of hear your opinion on whether or not you think Russia is an authoritarian country under Putin and whether Russia poses a threat um, to the United States um, current day. Well, Russia uh, clearly is an authoritarian country mm-hmm. under Putin, but it does have some um, democratic elements as well. And what I mean by that is that Putin is subject to election and re-election. So he has to put himself forward as a candidate uh, for the presidency um, after the end of each successive term. And it's very much um, then the case that he and others around him scrutinize the results to see indeed how legitimate he is in terms of popular acclaim. 
So I, I guess one way you might describe Russia is a kind of plebiscitary democracy. And, and again, plebiscite, you know, kind of like having a referendum. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically a kind of a, a public opinion or kind of popularity poll uh, for Putin um, in the presidency. Now, of course, um, up until now, there hasn't been much in the way of competition. And there's been some shifts. So there's Alexei Navalny, who has emerged uh, fairly recently as a key figure in the opposition. Uh, and until now, when Putin has been um, subject to an election campaign as president, it's been a shoo-in. You know, there's been no question that he's going to get elected or re-elected. And he actually, this past year in 2020, was able to pass through the Russian parliament an amendment to the Russian constitution that in theory would enable him to stay in office if he gets re-elected to the presidency for two more terms of six years each, which would take his tenure up to 2036. Currently, um, his position as president sort of expires. <laughs> no, it doesn't really expire, of course, but you know his term is up in 2024, which is you know, just a couple of years from now. And he clearly you know, wanted to be able to sort of stay around in the system for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. And the kind of question is why that we could get into uh, a little later. But the threat that he poses to the United States, which is you know, one of the main questions that um, you've put there, is I think really very much dependent on Putin's own perceptions of how secure he is domestically and how secure the Russian system is. And I think that, you know, once we start talking about this, it'll become clear that Russia has a rather acute threat perception and the United States plays into this. So where they feel that they're under some pressure domestically, and Putin does feel that because of um, a growing opposition movement now headed by Alexei Navalny, who, of course, is now in jail, but also because of COVID-19 and the uh, effects of the pandemic, the kind of political ripple effects that's had there, just like it has here and in Europe and elsewhere. The downturn in the Russian economy, sanctions from uh, the United States and uh, Europe. There's a lot of feeling of pressure in the system, which makes Putin feel more insecure. And then as a result, want to lash out at the United mm. States, because even though we might think, well, you know, why on earth does Russia still see as a massive threat? We're not trying to invade Russia. You know, we don't have any intent on, you know, trying to engage in a nuclear confrontation. It's not the Cold War anymore. We don't have designs on carving up Europe um, in any particular way. Russia looks at the United States capabilities and still sees us as the country most likely to be able to do harm to Russia be that in the nuclear front, but also uh, politically in terms of uh, trying to stir things up internally in Russia or external pressure on Russia, but also in these new domains of cyber um, and uh, in space as well. And we've seen that Russia has, of course, engaged in some massive hacking activity against uh, the United States. We've just all heard about this solar winds and um, use of the supply chain into a, a major um, US a cyber company that um, gives its services to the US government as well as a whole uh, slew of private companies and that Russia has managed to infiltrate uh, all of these systems here. And what Russia is trying to do here is put the United States on notice that it's not just a nuclear superpower, but it's also a cyber superpower. Mm. And that makes Russia a different kind of threat from what we had before, but also increases uh, the risk for us for the United States, because it's not just hacking our elections like in 2016, but it's could they bring down our national grids, for example. And we saw in Texas that was brought down by weather. But, you know, could an action by the uh, Russia, you know, do something similar, you know, kind of massive blackouts, you know, or attacks on nuclear power stations or hydroelectric power dams, this kind of thing. We have a lot of concerns now about what could Russia do if they actually wanted to, that could do great big damage uh, to our um, infrastructure and, you know, more broadly to our politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think you laid out really well just the, the threat that Russia poses. And obviously, Putin is, um, you know, the person who leads Russia. And today, as you, you know, mentioned, you know, Putin remains one of you know, the world's most powerful global leaders. And, you know, um, you wrote a book on him. And I just want to kind of focus on his childhood and kind of understanding who Putin is. Um, you know, he was this only child raised in a working class family in this kind of communal apartment with two other families. And to me, that seems like an unlikely path to being Russia's most powerful and wealthy man. So I'm curious to kind of hear you talk about his childhood and whether or not you, the way that he was raised had any bearing on his identity. Oh, thanks so much, Victor. Yes, I do think that the rate that he was raised does did have a big impact on his identity. One thing uh, to mention, however, though, is that during the Soviet period, a lot of the Soviet leaders had risen up from very humble origins. 
because mm -hmm. once people join the Communist Party, uh, either as you know, young adults or their parents were uh, Communist Party members, that was uh, a ladder for mobility for socio-economic and uh, other general social mobility. So, you know, people like um, Nikita Khrushchev, for example, came from an incredibly humble background. Um, and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, his family came from um, also, you know, fairly humble origins in an agricultural uh, region of Russia. So Putin's not the only person to have risen up. But what's interesting is he was not a member of the Communist Party and his family were not really either. Uh, the uh, closest that his family had come to power previously was one of his uh, grandparents was a, a chef or a cook for Stalin, which was a pretty dangerous job to have because, you know, obviously if you didn't like the food, that might be you after the gulag <laughs> or shot at dawn, who knows. Uh, but um, as you said, rightly, uh, Putin grew up in a communal flat. So in other words, um, a building that had been divided up into these really tiny family units, maybe one room or two rooms, where everyone shared the kitchen, the bathroom, and any other, you know, kind of major space. And it was very tense, you know, very tight uh, living quarters. And he was the only child of older parents. But his uh, decision uh, to seek social and political mobility was through the KGB. Mm -hmm. And he himself talks about how quite early on he became captivated, mostly through popular culture, some popularization of a kind of James Bond, uh, Russian KGB uh, officer, sort of similar, you know, kind of daring do, dashing, you know, guy in the um, uh, later part of uh, World War II had infiltrated into um, the German Nazi party and was, you know, still, um, you know, kind of op operating. This is kind of this television program that he saw. And um, th this uh, particular, you know, Soviet agent was, um, you know, behind enemy lines in uh, Nazi Germany. And then later there was a lot of glorification of um, the um, security services in the um, you know, 60s and uh, 70s in the uh, Soviet media. And Putin decides, well, that's for me. I want to join the KGB. And he also goes to university and he um, studies for a law degree. And he uh, eventually ends up uh, working his way up the KGB. So that was his path to power. It was kind of through the back corridors of power. It wasn't through the Communist Party apparatus. It's a sort of an unusual rise. And that, plus his hard scrabble background, you know, kind of tough street kid um, persona that he, you know, saw in his youth and um, also... He, um, as a kid on the streets of St. Petersburg, Leningrad, he got involved in, in judo, in martial arts. And that kind of became a channel for him to put um, his sort of fighting interests and skills and the hard school background into a more disciplined, formalistic uh, fashion in um, you know, basically becoming a member of a pretty um, gifted and talented uh, team of uh, judo uh, players who traveled around uh, Russia um, at that time, taking part in tournaments. So there's all kinds of things that went into shaping the Vladimir Putin that we see today. And he spent a lot of time himself crafting a kind of autobiographical uh, vision of himself that delves into this, the hardscrabble childhood, uh, the um, sports training in martial arts, giving him discipline, but also showing that he can fight. And uh, the fact that he kind of came up the very back corridors of the KGB and he adapted the skills that he learned in the KGB uh, to uh, emphasize his um, his role as a, as a politician. That is fascinating. And have you met him before? Like, like is, is he kind of like uh, the same way in person as we might expect, like this fighting spirit person who's very tough, uh, doesn't really uh, let for compromises he does he fit that stereotype yeah he does and he's also somebody who does his homework um i've met mm -hmm. him on several occasions i've had a couple of occasions where i've sat right next to him but i've been in meetings with him in my official capacities as well and he's really somebody who um is pretty quick thinking on his feet mm -hmm. uh yes he's very much pugnacious and uh you know obviously he's been in power for such a long time now that you know he's fairly polished and you know, doesn't have to do quite as much homework as he did before, but he's also somebody who's got a very specific worldview, a context in which he operates. And we have to bear that in mind too, that, you know, he, he's not thinking in the same frames as we, uh, as we are. And he's definitely of a different generation, you know, touching on the, the whole thrust of this podcast. 
um, he was born in 1952 and he grew up in the Soviet Union um, of the sort of 1960s and 70s, which is a very specific place. And then as Jill says, you know, he really kind of branches out after he's left the KGB when he becomes the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in this period of the Wild East where Jill was trying to do her work with Motorola, uh, which was a pretty um, backstabbing, um, you know, and uh, rather unpredictable period of uh, on the fringes of business as, as Russia was opening up. And, um, you know, there was a, there's a lot of stories around St. Petersburg and Vladimir Putin's role as the uh, deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in that period. So when I do want to follow up on that, because after his time in the KGB, when he went to work for Mayor Subject um, and stayed until basically Mayor Subject had lost and then he moved to Moscow, um, he worked for Boris Yeltsin, who was then president. But he quickly rose to the head of the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB. And um, he had just a really meteoric rise and then became the uh, deputy prime minister and then the prime minister. And then Yeltsin uh, left office and he became president. And it was, to me, a really fast increase. When, when I met him, um, he was handling um, actually integration of foreign business into Russia, and he was very helpful um, to St. Petersburg Telecom uh, in a very professional and you know fine way. I certainly would not have predicted that he would go from that to being the lifetime president. I and mean, he had to change. Um, you mentioned that he now can stay till 2036, but that's because he changed the constitution. Um, he was in office for two terms and couldn't run for a third. So he went back to being prime minister. And then when he went back to be president, he made sure that the constitution allowed him to stay until 2036. So, um, to me, I want to know about, did Putin make any major changes in the political system, aside from changing the constitution to allow him to stay in office when he assumed the presidency? Was there any uh, big change. I mean, communism and the Communist Party, as you mentioned, he wasn't part of. So um, how how has he changed it? I think he's made it uh, a populist system in the sense that you know, there's sort of a, so a short circuiting of uh, the democratic system here. He's not a member of a political party either. So United mm -hmm. Russia or Yedinia Rasiya, which everyone sees as the um, ruling party of Russia, it's not his party per se. I mean, he's more at the kind of head of a movement than anything else. And at different points, he's used that political party and at others, he's, you know, picked up other kind of looser movements. He's tried to kind of reach across generations and across all kinds of different uh, people. He hasn't found the political party so useful. And back in the day of the 1990s, uh, Jill, when you were in, um, in Russia, of course, there was a lot more of political party development, and Yeltsin was, um, you know, very much kind of rooted in a, like a ruling party that was around him. Putin also pays an enormous amount of attention to his popularity and to public opinion polling. That's when I said it was kind of like a plebiscitary democracy. It's yeah, always taking the temperature. And Yeltsin, when he was in office, his um, public um, ratings dropped to single digits. Like seven, eight, nine percent, you know, by the time that he was leaving the stage. And of course, if, um, you know, Putin's obsessed with being certainly over 50 percent and uh, well, you know, above that. And so there's a, a constant surveying of uh, public opinion, They're trying to see how much people might be turning against him or how much they may be very concerned about some of the larger trends. So, th so that's also very important, this constant uh, polling and surveying of the, the Russian population. That's, again, what I mean by um, being quite populist. Another thing that Putin has tried to do is try to appeal to the largest group of people possible. Now, Yeltsin was also quite concerned about this because in the 1990s, there was a great uh, worry that Russia itself would unravel, that the Russian Federation would also break apart, just like the Soviet Union had. And Putin has really pushed the United, uh, you know, Russia, or was united, rather, pushed Russia back together again. And that, um, uh, you know, has been in part because of his attempts to try to constantly figure out what's the largest group that he, he can appeal to. 
And he's been very careful not to exacerbate Russia's divisions, apart from to go after kind of narrow groups, as Alexei Navalny represents, of uh, opposition figures where he judges they don't have a large base of support. Mm -hmm. And what he does when he starts to see opposition emerging is he literally decapitates the movement. So this is why Navalny has been targeted both for assassination, uh, which didn't succeed, but now put behind bars, you know, not necessarily as far as from Moscow as he can get, but in a kind of a penal uh, colony system where he's essentially muzzled and not able to communicate with um, the rest of Russia or the outside world more broadly. So he's taking uh, opposition figures out of the system at all time to reduce uh, the opposition. So he's also changed it in a way where, um, again, there's very little representation of the people apart from him himself. And this constitutional change that you also mentioned, Jill, is very important here because now the constitution is the, really the mechanism that supports Putin's position along with the polling, the legitimacy that comes from being the most uh, popular uh, politician and having you know, well above 50% of the uh, approval rating. So what you've said... Yeah, so the constitution, a number of questions. Yeah, because yeah. I was just going to say quickly, though, Jill, because what he's almost turned mm -hmm. himself into is an elected monarch. Yes. A kind of constitutional mm -hmm. monarch. It doesn't mean there's any checks and balances on this, but it's just kind of him standing above everything else. And that's a real change from Yeltsin back in uh, the 1990s. So and that is one of my questions is he has become what I would view as a more authoritarian the longer he's there. And yet he does seem to have popular support uh, in terms of elections. He wins overwhelmingly. And so, of course, I have two questions. One, what is his, what in America we would call his platform? What is the movement? You say he's not a party, he's a movement. But what is that movement? And why does he retain popularity? Is it because he's fixing the election and he's not really winning by that amount? Or because he has threatened people in a way that they vote for him no matter what they think? Or is he just really popular because people like a strongman? Uh, I mean, my image of him is not the, the fighting one so much as the bare-chested horseman. Um, and so can you help us understand what, his, what he stands for in terms of government? Well, there's a little bit of all of that in there, because, as we know, uh, people are not monolithic and, you know, people uh, have different views that they bring to the table every time when they're looking at a leader. So I think all of those elements uh, resonate with with some people there, Jill. But I think, you know, on the other front, he's become a symbol of the state and he's been there so long now, since uh, 2000. And some of his own aides and advisors have said there's no Russia without Vladimir Putin, mm -hmm. that he's become a tantamount to being the head of state and is uh, again like the Russian flag and the national album uh, uh, album emblem <laughs> there might be a national album as well it's probably a, a, a collection <laughs> of, um, uh, of photographs of uh, Vladimir Putin or you know if it's a musical album him playing the piano and singing or something but he's become the be-all and the end-all of uh, things in Russian so I think that's also is part of the difficulty of passing his popularity because in public opinion polls where people have said you know, what do you think of Putin? How do you feel about Putin? It's like saying, well, what do you think about Russia? How do you feel about Russia? Because there isn't anybody else right there in the firmament uh, for people to focus on. Again, no political party that's standing in, and he's now put himself into this pantheon, and everything about him is monarchical czarist, you know, Vladimir the Great uh, is the way that he's presenting himself. Wow. And so that this, um, in, in longevity, he's been there for a long time, there were some focus groups that were uh, put in place after the amendments to the constitution to allow him to stay you know, for the next two terms, another two sets of six year terms. Mm -hmm. And people were asked, you know, why did you vote for the amendments? And some of it was extremely interesting. Well, he leaves me alone. He doesn't really bother me. You know, so I, I don't feel under any threat from the state. I'm allowed to get on with, um, you know, what what I want to do. You know, I, I just don't have to pay attention to the politics. Some other people like the idea of make Russia great again. The whole idea of Russia being a great power and him being a statesman that people are respecting, you know, outside and that he's brought stability and predictability to the uh, internal politics. Others felt that their economic situation had improved uh, under Putin. And it is true that Russians are better off now than they've ever been. And, uh, you know, that was not the case, certainly in the 1990s, when everyone lost their jobs. But people do feel that they're getting some economic benefit 
benefits from this. Other people think that he's created a system that can be taken off into the future. But of course, and there are others who feel frustrated because they don't see uh, with him staying in power so long their own prospects for mobility. And what Putin and others have done is encourage people who are normally dissidents, people who don't agree with the way that he's running things to leave. Just go and go abroad, stay abroad, don't come back. And so what's really changing now with Alexei Navalny coming back, having been in Germany for treatment after this assassination attempt, is that there's starting to bubble up uh, mm -hmm. some real popular sentiment in favour of change and, you know, social mobility for other people. Because Putin, um, you know, he's not that young and he's also not that old, but, you know, the idea that he might be there until 2036 when he'll be in his 80s, that seems to... Uh, for many people, redolent of stagnation and very reminiscent of the Soviet period where you had a whole series of geriatric secretaries of the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party, uh, Soviet leaders who literally just sort of dropped off in office and had to be kind of carried out and put you know, next to Lenin's mausoleum. And so the sort of symbolism of having yeah. an ageing president uh, for a lot of people is starting to rankle a bit. And although that they would say that, you know, kind of we've never had it quite so good under Putin, those people who do want to stick their head up, want to have change, would like to see more reform, are feeling that that's being stifled. So there could be a bit of a shift coming up in the next uh, year or so. So two things you've said um, I want to follow up on. One is about Navalny, and he was poisoned and took ill on a flight that landed, and he was rushed to a hospital in Germany where he was saved. Why did he return? Um, he had to know that he would be at risk. And now he's basically incommunicado, as I understand it, in the penal colony that he has been sentenced to. He's under potential extension of his uh, sentence by uh, Putin, and he probably cannot communicate with the outside world. He will not receive mail, according to former prisoners in this penal colony, and his communications out won't be delivered. So he has no power to influence anything. What do you think motivated him to come back? Well, I think there are two things, uh, well, maybe even three things. First of all, um, Alexei Navalny is a Russian patriot, and he is uh, someone who wants to be in Russia. And he said that very openly. He did not want to live in exile. The second thing is he wants to be president, and maybe that's actually the first thing. Um, he is willing to actually take on Putin, and it's no good doing that from exile either. Um, you know, he, you can see what happened to Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who you know, obviously had a very different background, originally one of the oligarchs, and, and at different points even seemed to be the poster child for oligarchs, um, seemed to be favoured by Putin at one point until he wasn't, and then ended up having his assets, the UCOS oil company, taken away from him, and him also being sent to a penal colony for 10 years, in which he emerged, you know, really pretty scathed from this experience. Yeah. And uh, Odakovsky... Uh, got a lot of respect for actually being willing to subject himself or be subjected to this time in a penal colony, but he left after that and he now lives abroad. Alexei Navalny, you know, could see that you cannot be a leader of the opposition. You can't have aspirations to be Russian president right. if you're not willing to risk it all. So that's, you know, clearly part of it. And I think the other um, uh, point is probably more of a gamble that he could actually still have influence by appearing in uh, Russia, coming back, getting people's attention because it's an audaciously bold move because he knows he could be killed in uh, the penal colony, not just silenced and put out of the way for a very long period of time, but that he might inspire this new generation. He's a different generation uh, from uh, Putin. He's only in his 40s and uh, rather than in his late 60s. And um, he is a representative of the people who want to make Russia a different place. They don't want to necessarily bring the whole system down but they want to renew it. They want to have people like them in there. They want to have social mobility for themselves. They want to see some political and economic change. And he said they don't want Russia to be a big prison. They want, you know, can Russia to actually change. And he's really emblematic of uh, many other opposition figures in the past, going all the way back to the Tsarist era, people who wanted to affect change and have Russia change itself. They didn't want to live abroad and have the freedoms of somewhere else. They wanted that in Russia. And that's kind of basically... Yeah. You know what Navalny is saying, yeah, okay, I could have lived in Germany or anywhere else, but that's not what I want. 
You know, I want to be president of Russia. I am a Russian and I want to see change. So before um, I turn it back to Victor for some more questions, it might help probably Victor. We haven't talked about this, but um, I mean, I grew up in an era where I know what the USSR is and how big it was. Um, and actually, I, I worked for something called the Assembly of Captive European Nations while I was in law school, which was the former leaders of countries that had been taken over and became part of the USSR who wanted to be and are now again free, Lithuania and Latvia and Romania, et cetera. Um, so it, it might help to talk about when we talk about the former glory of what was then this huge landmass that has been reduced, um, and then you see things like um, Crimea happen, um, that seems to be an important part of what's going on in Russia and how maybe Russians feel. Is that, do you think that's a fair uh, comment? Yeah, I do think that's fair. Um, you know, it would be also, you know, if the United States had uh, fallen apart, uh, and, you know, we'd lost a few critical states, you know, for example, uh, which was of course a real threat during the civil war and, you know, mm -hmm. be a threat today given you know, all of our uh, socioeconomic and political divisions that are, that are emerging. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, that idea of Putin, he said himself on a couple of occasions that the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Russian state. Yeah. And in fact, the state collapsed twice. Uh, the first was with the Russian Revolution in 1917, and then the second was the collapse of the Soviet Union, the successor to the uh, Russian Empire, in um, you know basically uh, 1991. So you know Putin obviously didn't live through both of those, but family members would have done. But his perception then is of this kind of great state, this great empire, this right. kind of great superpower that then lost its place, and he wants to see Russia regain that and see Russia again as a global player. So that's a very important part of his mind because he grew up at the kind of peak of Soviet power. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, he's uh, the, probably the most was kind of golden part of his youth would have been the 1970s when, you know, the Soviet Union, it might have looked like it was sort of stagnating from our perspective, but from inside that was actually seen as a fairly positive period for, uh, for Russians or uh, Soviets themselves. But Victor, I mean, from someone from uh, your generation of looking at this, like Jill said, I mean, that is a really distant, uh, distant memory. The idea of the Soviet Union of a, probably seems as distant as the Russian empire. Uh, you know, does that does that resonate for you? It definitely does seem distant. Um, and these are the things that I think that we learn in like the history books, but now kind of seeing this play out in real life with Navani and kind of the, the Navani challenge while Putin is kind of still trying to make change is just, it's fascinating for my generation to see this happening in real time and those pro demonstrations for Navani. It was, it was um, definitely a moment for, for our generation to see that and kind of just following up on that kind of line of Navani and, and what you said about the role of younger generations and how Navani kind of attracts the younger generation. What was striking to me when I saw like that initial video that went viral, I think it got like 70 or more million views on, on YouTube. I, I'm wondering what factor social media and other kind of visually based mediums play in changing the minds of um, Russians and specifically what role kind of younger Russians and their use of social media and other kind of platforms play in that? Well, that's a brilliant question because you're absolutely right. Um, Navalny being from a younger generation, but not the youngest uh, generation, mm -hmm. um, he is um, basically a master the digital age he's really adapted technology mm. to uh, his own use and um, he also doesn't really have a political party but he has a movement and he has staked out his opposition movement through uh, digital uh, media uh, social media platforms the um, video that you're referring to just for people who are listening so when Navalny returned to Russia after um, his period of recuperation in Germany he released just after his return this video, which is um, almost two hours uh, long, that um, uh, basically, um, actually it's more than two hours long actually, I've, I've, I've watched it um, <laughs> halfway through now and I still haven't got all the way to the end of it, I keep having to do it in segments, which is a, a kind of uh, expose of some material that people knew before, but he's put it together in a really very effective way of um, just the levels of corruption uh, on the part of Putin and people around him. So it's an expose of this massive palace that has been built on the Black Sea coast for Putin. 
uh, in a, a, a place that's you know, quite familiar to lots of Russians. And in fact, now I think more than 120 million people have seen this. Wow. Now, it could be people like me who keep going back, you know, kind of clicking on it again to watch the rest of it. because It is quite a commitment to, to sit and watch it. But it's so slick. It's just so well done. Navalny has this really direct way of speaking. He's mm. put on all of this investigative material together. And this is really having an impact. The other um, video that was released before he went back was he him tricking and duping one of the people from the FSB, the uh, precursor, uh, the uh, not precursor, whatever it is, the successor, thank you, <laughs> getting my words all muddled up here, the successor to the KGB, uh, one of the team who had tried to assassinate him. And he manages to get uh, one of these FSB team members on the phone with the assistance of Bellingcat Investigative Journalist Group and get the man to admit what they had done, which is basically lacing uh, the seams of his underpants with the Novichok nerve agent to kill him. And the other person admits that um, he would have been killed, he would have died rather, had it not been for the pilot of the plane who turned around and the doctors um, in the uh, Urals region who saved his life. And this is just an astounding oh video. I really recommend people going back and listening to this. And it humiliates the FSB, and of course it humiliates Putin, because now Navalny calls him, you know, Vladimir the underpants poisoner. You know, so he's kind of given him this, you know, slightly ridiculous label. But um, it's forced Putin to really pay attention to him. And the fact that Navalny now has this harsh sentence really shows how much he's got under the skin of Putin and his generation of people who are not so adept in the digital world. And Russia doesn't have the same repressive system that it had before. So to uh, Navalny has challenged Putin as well, saying, look, you can't put the whole country in jail. This is not the period of Stalin. We don't have the gulags anymore. The penal colonies are a remnant of that system. The gulags being these mass concentration camps that you know half of Russia was in at different periods from the 20s and 30s and you know, kind of through even World War II and you know, afterwards until it was disbanded in their 50s. But Putin then has to punish Navalny really severely to send a lesson to everyone else. And that's what Navalny is saying. He had a moment at the end of his trial where he was given some opportunity to say something finally. And he basically says, I'm being put in jail now to stop a million other people from protesting. Mm -hmm. And so he's hoping that other people will be inspired, the people who are organizing themselves in the, in the digital sector and on social media, the people of your generation, the younger generations, because um, you know Navalny is probably a uh, millennial, if we were using our own terms, mm -hmm. but there's still you know Russia's equivalent of Generation Z out there. It's not diverse like in the United States. I mean, Russia has become more you know um, Slavic over time, really. Although there's been a lot of immigration um, from the former Soviet republics of uh, Central Asia, but Navalny is really appealed to you know next generations of Russian youth who just want something different. And, you know, they're better educated than the people who came before them. They're more connected with the rest of the world through social media, their ability to travel, having a bit more disposable income, particularly those in the big cities. And he's now sparked off demonstrations across the whole of Russia, even though there might be 100 people here, 1,000 people here, it's not millions of people out there. It is a challenge because if the Russian government clamps down too hard and starts to, you know, basically imprison on a mass scale lots of younger people, there could be more of a backlash. It's a mm -hmm. fine calibration for them. They can't do what China's been doing, which is sort of right. rounding everybody up on a mass scale and you know sticking them all in uh, penal colonies. So there might be a big backlash if they're not too careful. We'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on what happens. And I think just kind of referencing back to what you said about his use of social media, that is just, that really captures for my generation, I think for Nalvani to use social media and these visual-based communications and mediums to convey that message, I think, I wonder whether or not that also has an effect on kind of the older generations in Russia, too, because kind of culturally, I think that for a lot of older Russians that also had a, uh, you know, a lot of the way that they got their news was through these visual based mediums. And um, I don't know, that just seems fascinating how Navani was able to harness those uh, types of video based platforms to, to convey his message. Yeah, because he has to compete with TV and radio, I mean, the old mediums of mm. TV and radio, because I mean, Jill will remember, um, you know, when you were in Russia and I was in Russia, that was how most people got their news. I mean, yes, there was the print media, um, the old newspapers like Pravda and Zvestia yeah. and others. Um, but people listened um, to the radio to some degree in remote areas, but mostly they were getting it from the television. And of course, Navalny's not gonna be allowed on those medium media. So he has gone digital and 
he's on social media and on the internet and YouTube, you know, his own channel. So he's kind of bypassed mm. this. And the question will be whether the Russian government tries to clamp down like China has, you know, kind of creating this sort of big firewall uh, or whether they'll just, you know, with taking him out of there, they'll assume that they've taken the guy out because he is so compelling. He's such a great speaker that if he's mm -hmm. taken away and off the scene for a period that would actually is going to, you know, of course, lead up to the next election for presidential election. Navalny's not going to be in the picture. So that gets back to what Jill, you know, we were yeah. saying before. If he has to run for re-election again in 2024, Putin, he wants to put the main contender out of the picture. So it's just really him again. They'll manufacture uh -huh. some kind of opposition figure. Uh, but Navalny will not be in the mix. Let's talk a little bit about the 2016 election in America when our intelligence services have concluded that Russia interfered in that election. And it, although it's never been entirely admitted by Trump, at least, that it was to help him, I'm wondering if you have an opinion of whether it was to help Trump or just to create chaos in America or a combination of those. Um, I mean, we know they did it. The question is why? I think it's a combination of those things. Um, I mean, the Russians were not fans, to say the least, of Hillary Clinton. So, um, in other words, they wanted to really weaken her and they wanted to, uh, you know, have lots of people making, uh, you know, feeling, let's say, that the outcome of the election, no matter what happened, was under a big cloud and under question marks. Because, of course, the United States has been at the forefront of international election observation. We're always pronouncing on other people's elections, whether they're free and fair, whether the outcome is seen as legitimate, and the Russians wanted to turn the tide back on us as well. So yes, they were trying to tip the scales in favour of Trump, but I don't know whether they actually really thought that he would get elected. And they were playing on United States divisions and on the United States um, uh, political partisan rancor that was already building up. There were... Uh, amplifying all the things that Americans were saying about other Americans on social media. They were basically retweeting and uh, sending around using bots all kinds of inflammatory messages. They were trying to play on issues of race and religion and on gun control and abortion and, you know, just trying to leap out onto every hot button issue in the Russian, uh, in the United States political scene, because the kind of thing that they do at home in Russia, they also try to sort of stir things around and pit people against each other as parts of social control. But in this case, I think they wanted to kind of bring out, you know, the worst in the United States mm -hmm. to show that we were just full of hubris and that we would just know better than them. It was a kind of a whataboutism or, a, you know, kind of pulling everybody else down to the same level and just sort of revealing to the rest of the world that the United States was no better than anyone else. Right. And I think it was just a great gift to Vladimir Putin when everyone actually then said that um, Trump was elected by Putin. Because on the one hand, this makes Russia and Putin and the security services seem incredibly powerful, uh, that they could actually swear the election in the United States. And on the other hand, it just casts this massive cloud over Trump and it plays with his own psych psychology because yeah, Trump, yeah. the idea that he didn't win on his own is just kind of a little bit too much to handle. And also again, and they wanted to massively damage Clinton. And the thing, we could do a counterfactual. And what would it have been like if Hillary Clinton had won by a narrow margin in the Electoral College, having been raked through the coals on all of these other issues and the Russians sort of pumping up all of this anti-Clinton sentiment that was already there anywhere, her presidency, if she had been the president for the last four years, would have been under a cloud too. And maybe she might also just be a one-term president. So for them, it was kind of a win-win. And they didn't invent any of the problems in the United States. These are all on us. They just exploited them pretty effectively and played with our minds. It was all a big you mind. you point game. to anything specific that was, why did they hate Hillary Clinton? What was the specific problem? Well, there are quite a few issues here. One of them is that Putin's pretty convinced, uh, because they often talk themselves into it, that she had a hand in the protests that um, broke out in Russia when he sought re-election again after that period when he was the prime minister? Because you mentioned already, Joe, right. you said that he'd already been president twice and he was right. prime minister, he had to step away after two terms. And then when he wanted to return again in that period of 2011 to 2012, there was a whole host of protests. And because Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State at that moment and the State Department gave a lot of funding to various uh, Russian election groups, and transparency organizations. And of course, some of those were quite active in highlighting discrepancies and problems in the voting. 
uh, for uh, Putin's uh, re-election as president, they blamed her uh, for you know, somehow orchestrating um, the protests or the backlash against uh, Putin. Then the other hand is that um, I'm afraid they're very misogynistic and sexist. Mm-hmm. Very keen on her in, the, uh, in that instance either. And I think it's also because of her own policy. She's pretty tough on Russia. And it was very clear to them, just like it is now with uh, Joe Biden, that it would be very difficult uh, to deal with her. She'd be very predictable, then know what she would be dealing with, but she was likely to take pretty strong action. Um, And Putin himself has actually said that he was more supportive of Trump because Trump said he wanted to improve the US-Russia relationship. Mm -hmm. And of course, they assume that Hillary Clinton would want to do nothing of the sort. So there's kind of a whole bunch of perceptions on, on their part. Thank you. That really helps me understand. What do you think the future for U.S.-Russia um, relations is with the new president and new national security team? Look, it's going to be very difficult because, unfortunately, we've got ourselves into this sort of confrontation and crisis cycle. We just seem to kind of go around from one to the next. And it's been very hard for us to find a way forward as to what kind of relationship we even want to have. The Russians still see as a geopolitical threat. And we you know, had to, you know, with reluctance, admit that they seem to remain in that space as well. You remember that Mitt Romney you know, said some years ago that Russia was still our geopolitical foe. And at the time, people laughed that it's ridiculous. We're not you know, in the Cold War anymore. We don't want to dividing bits of the world up into different systems. But the Russians do still see us in that framework. They feel that there was all this humiliation at the end of the Cold War of the last mm-hmm. 30 years that we you know, kicked them when they were down. They'd like the opportunity to do that again back to us, which is extraordinarily unfortunate. They still see the United States as having this massive capacity to do harm to them, huge conventional military power, still the massive uh, nuclear arsenal. We're still the you know, only two countries that can blow each other up multiple times over. And of course, there's the new dimensions of space, uh, outer space and cyberspace and all the other domains in which uh, the United States still for now, although we're tipping over you know, into China's uh, being the dominant power here, but still where the United States tends to dominate. And so whether we like it or not, the Russians still see us as a threat. It's also for them a kind of a familiar frame and they are worried themselves about being pitted against China mm. down the line. And during the Trump administration, there were three things that uh, Trump wanted to have out of the relationship with Russia. He wanted, first of all, to have a big arms control agreement to finish off the 1980s. But then he wanted to win Russia over to the United States side to push back on China and also on Iran. And those are things that Russia doesn't want at all. Those attitudes does want to have a big arms control agreement just between the United States and Russia, not kind of a larger global arms control agreement because the world is a much more complex and rather dangerous place now in terms of the proliferation of nuclear weapons. But Russia does not want to be pitted against China, it doesn't want to be any kind of anti-China coalition because that's their weakest, most vulnerable border is with China. Yeah. And also with Iran, Russia sees Iran as a major player in its region. You know, It doesn't have a great relationship with Iran, but it has a good relationship with Iran. Its difficulties, it wants to be friends with everyone in the Middle East and in being friends with Iran means you have to be friends with the Gulf states and also with Israel, which you know Russia is also trying to improve all those relationships. But it doesn't want to be any in an anti-Iran coalition. So that was all very difficult. And so I think there might be a bit of a sigh of relief on the Russian part that Biden is not likely to be trying to pull Russia over, you know, in an anti-China or anti-Iran mm-hmm. coalition. But then the question is, we don't know what to do with this relationship. We'd like to stop it from being a crisis. We don't want it to be a confrontation, but we just don't know what we want with Russia, whereas Russia still sees us in this old style threat framework. And so I think that's our big dilemma. You know, can we stabilize it? Can we, you know, try to get Russia off our backs all the time? But where are we going with this is just a a big question mark. So one last question for me. Um, You've written about the January 6th attempted insurrection, but you called it a self-coup. And I found that a very interesting description and especially reading your definition of what exactly defines a coup and how each of those things was present uh, in this one. And so I think it'd be interesting for our audience to hear about your definition of you know the use of military and paramilitary communications, judiciary, 
mobilizing popular support and government institutions and legislatures. Um, so can you just, you know, give a little bit more about how Trump attempted a self-coup? Well, a self-coup, it's where you try to keep yourself in power and, you know, using all of the uh, leverage and the authorities of your incumbency um, to basically stay where you are, irrespective of, you know, what the voters may uh, decide. So I think it's, you know, pretty self-evident that Trump wanted to stay in power. Um, he still not denied um, that um, uh, he um, lost the election and I'll kind of affirm that he lost the election. So I'm getting my uh, negatives muddled up there. I mean, basically, he hasn't affirmed that um, Joe Biden has won the election. I mean, he's no, he actually that. yesterday yes. at the um, CPAC, he actually said, I won and I might run again and win for the third time. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, this this kind of in, in of itself just underscores the point. But then uh, the larger issue is what did he do to try to stay in power? And you know, over the course of the whole of 2020, we saw many things. What is it's dominating the media with uh, discussions about how the election was either going to be stolen before it happened or was stolen after it happened. Uh, massive fraud declared well in advance, and then after the times, all kinds of legal uh, efforts uh, to. Um, overturn the election. But then, you know, as you were suggesting there, Jill, calling or trying to use the US military, certainly trying to use paramilitary forces, lots of discussions about potentially uh, calling um, for forms of martial law, uh, reruns of uh, the elections if uh, the legal uh, efforts didn't work out. And then clearly trying to get over onto his side, the legislature as well as kind of rather grassroots support, as well as the media. I mean, he took control in many respects of the, the airways. I mean, he used Twitter and you know, Facebook, as well as Fox News and other media, always to press his points and to mobilize people behind them. And then the fact that you had so many members of Congress, uh, was it 147 members of Congress, one way or another, who were challenging the vote, as, as well as you know the, the group of senators led by Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and others who also challenged the vote in the Senate. And then trying to pressure not just Vice President Pence to annul the Electoral College results, but phone calls to Mr. Raffensperger and others in Georgia, the state secretaries, uh, it wasn't just the Georgians, uh, it was also in a couple of other states as well, putting pressure on them with phone calls, getting them to change the results or find other votes. I mean, all of these are examples that fit into this, um, this picture. And um, as you mentioned, I, I wrote a piece in Politico in January, just after this happened, just running through all of this. I did also say, though, that um, it didn't succeed. So this was an attempt at a self-coup. Yes, yes, exactly. Because the US military didn't um, you know, play along. In fact, we had the former defense ministers, uh, a really remarkable um, effort of all these former defense ministers to uh, defense secretaries to get together and write a letter to the Washington Post reminding the Pentagon and all the uniformed military of their oath to the Constitution, essentially shutting that down. We had resistance at the state level from governors and state secretaries, electoral officials uh, going back and repudiating uh, the votes. We had the judiciary, the court system, all the way up to the mm -hmm. Supreme Court rejecting uh, these measures. The elements that he really had in his favor with the media. And then, of course, after this, we had um, Facebook and uh, Twitter, Twitter taking the lead, cutting him off. Because really, I mean, this ability to communicate directly with uh, 88 million people bypassing normal channels uh, was one of the tools that he was trying to use. But he has still maintained a very large grassroots base and still a lot of support in uh, Congress. So in many respects, he, he can now try to affect something from the outside to something more you know, conventional uh, in, the, in the sense of a coup. But the question is really about military force. And this is why we're also worried about militias and um, others who might yeah. act just in his name, even if he isn't actually uh, directly uh, um, trying to use them. So we're in a very dangerous situation after January 6th. Well, we have a lot of people who've been you know, roused up by these efforts for Trump to stay in power for their own purposes. So there's an awful lot of people trying to ride along on his coattails mm -hmm. to press forward their own agendas as well. So it's not just about Trump, but it's just about a Pandora's box that has been opened up by, you know, this uh, essential acceptance of people not just using violent rhetoric, but turning to violence themselves in the pursuit of political goals. And, and you wrote, I think, one of the most powerful things in that Politico uh, article, which I 
hope everyone will read. It's really powerful. Is you wrote, congressional representatives have to take personal responsibility for their action supporting Trump's coup attempt. They must tell the truth to their constituents about the election and what the president tried to do in January 2021. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to Victor for the, the last question. Yeah, I mean, so taking a turn for, for a sharp turn, um, for my generation who may be interested in intelligence, I think, you know, we, when I saw you testify, I was telling my peers how inspired I was by your testimony and um, what you said. And, you know, what advice would you have for anyone who may be interested in working in intelligence? And what's been your experience like working at, uh, working on the national security team, but also uh, working for Brookings? Like, how has that experience been? And what would you say to any young people who, you know, may want to get into this realm of work? Well, first of all, Victor, intelligence isn't um, all James Bond and you know, Judy Dench playing M, you know, in, in Bond movies. Um, it, it really is about analysis mm -hmm. and really understanding the larger context of the information that you're collecting and trying to sift through to basically inform policymakers of uh, the larger considerations that they're going to have to factor in when they're making policy. And I've been on both sides of this now, starting off, first of all, as an intelligence analyst, as uh, Jill said, and also being in the think tank world, and then getting into the National Security uh, Council and trying to you know, figure out um, the policy. I mean, it's really kind of scoping out for people what's the art of the possible, because policymaking is very much an art. And even intelligence itself is, is about making your best judgment based on the information you have available. And you have to be able to say when you don't have complete information that's why you're often you know kind of seeing these weird wording about assessments you know about high confidence medium confidence and low confidence with high confidence you're pretty sure but you know still kind of a, a slight element of doubt and you know when you get into the sort of medium and low confidence then you've got to be very careful about how you're making judgments about actions that you can take because that means there's a lot of unknowns there and again as i said the context is really important and I think that for um, intelligence work or analyst work, whether it be in think tanks or then the um, intelligence uh, community as well, we really need different perspectives brought in. Because we saw um, in the aftermath of 9-11 after the terrible terrorist attacks or then the decision to go into Iraq in 2003 over the questions about whether Saddam Hussein had or had not weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. turned out he did not, that an awful lot of our failure uh, to make uh, the, re the, the correct assessments here was because we've been all thinking in the same box, a kind of group thing, mm -hmm. same kind of people all thinking about things. And when I came into the intelligence community in 2005, 2006, it was partly a reaction to all of this. They wanted to bring people in from the outside who might have different perspectives, people from different backgrounds, genders, racial, ethnic backgrounds, different experiences. I mean, obviously I'm an immigrant, but I'm, I am a citizen. And I actually replaced um, another uh, colleague, Angela Stent, who was also um, originally British, though her family had fled the Holocaust from Germany and had you know, multiple layers of being outsiders and you know, different perspectives um, on things. And that's what we really need. I mean, I would encourage people to think about joining not just the um, intelligence service, but also public service more broadly and the federal government. We need fresh views. We need people from your generation, which is the most diverse generation in US history, to come in and bring your perspectives as well. Because I think that you know, we're missing the larger context. And I know now that you know, from discussions with Russian colleagues, you know, particularly those who are my age and, and older, they don't really understand what's happening in the United States. And you know, the world is changing dramatically. Technological change, which we talked about with the new digital age, so many people you know, living online, you know, rather than out in the real world these days. But there's also massive climate change, socioeconomic change, demographic change in the United States and generational change. We have to be able to factor all of that in. So our intelligence is only as good as the context that we bring to it, not just the information that we kind of collect from all kinds of different sources. And, you know, you might have the best intelligence in the world in terms of like you know, stolen secrets but you don't know what to do with them if you don't understand the larger context that's just as meaningless as anything else it's people who know the languages people who understand the culture and people understand ourselves how we think about things because we often interpret intelligence or bring a lot of uh, from our own perspective and we bring a lot of biases uh, to our analysis and that's something that we have to be mindful of and i do think that you know your generation 
not just being the most diverse is also probably the best educated and probably you know the best informed given all of the uh, sources of information that you have as well so I would really encourage people to consider this um, for a career as well as public service and uh, you know coming into the federal government and trying to work in national security overall what well, a great answer yeah. this has been a fascinating discussion uh, for I know for me and I'm sure for Victor and I'm also sure it will be for our audience so Thank you very much, Fiona Hill, for joining us and spending time with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Victor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.